Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Justin E. Bell for The Outer Worlds. And my goodness, do I enjoy this soundtrack. I also, of course, equally enjoyed talking with Justin about it. Justin just celebrated his 10-year anniversary working at Obsidian. So we started off by talking about what the first project was that he worked on when he started. Obsidian game that I worked on was a project called Dungeon Siege 3. Basically my first day at work, we were talking about what I was going to work on and basically Obsidian was working on a um, a, a vertical slice for a game called Dungeon Siege 3 um, and I played the second one so I was, I was a little familiar with the IP and the vertical slice was due that month so I had to sort of hit the ground running and, and really get caught up to speed in <laughs> in not a lot of time and it was a, a bit of trial by fire but it, it, it was cool it was it, it was a fun experience awesome. and then shortly right after that uh, transitioned directly on to fallout new vegas which was my first real big game at obsidian yeah and i mean that game is that game's great <laughs> i love that game <laughs> yeah i love it, all fun. fallout but i mean yeah that's wonderful it's hard not to. It's oh, I know. To. And I could I sense just for me when I the 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 first I don't know hour I spent playing the Outer Worlds, I it's like it it took care of like my Firefly needs, like the the missing hole in my heart that is the size of the TV show Firefly. It took care of like my Mass Effect and my Fallout, it, like it just hit all those buttons of all those games that I loved so much, uh, not least of which was the music. So I I really would love to hear like what your approach was to coming up with the sound for the game. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, you, you touched on a couple really uh, interesting points and, and, and uh, you know, that itch that a lot of folks had, um, you know, that they just needed scratching. That's, that's exactly what we were going for as a team. So it's really gratifying to know that we succeeded in that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the team, the team play, right, was just so all that whole Mass Effect feel that I loved having the team and interacting with your teammates and going on missions with your teammates, just all that stuff. But, you know, that's a, that's a whole other gameplay conversation. <laughs> but, uh, but back to, yeah, creating the sound for the game. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but uh, talk, talk about that. So early on, very, very early on in the project, um, I was discussing the soundtrack and, and the musical direction with Tim Kane and Leonard Boyarski, who are the co-game directors of The Outer Worlds. And um, Tim had a very clear vision for what he wanted the music to sound like texturally. And uh, he's, he's a real big fan of ambient electronic music, um, like Brian Eno and that, that sort of thing. And so we just started talking about that and, and how that might work for a game 
um, like the one that we're making. And I think there was sort of a functional, not just a, a creative um, mood that he was trying to express, but also a functional one too, because ambient music really works well to set a mood, but it's also not very intrusive because it doesn't necessarily have very strong melodic content. Mm -hmm. Um, So it can help set that tone, help set that mood um, without calling too much attention to itself. And that was the balance that we were always talking about and figuring out how to dial in and make right for the game. And um, Leonard, his contribution to this music conversation was he is a real big fan of uh, Carter Burwell and uh, his music for True Grit. And so we talked about a, lo- a lot about Americana and um, that sort of Western sensibility, American folk music kind of quality that, that, uh, that you can hear in that soundtrack. And we were, you know, trying to figure out ways that we can incorporate it in a way that felt meaningful for a science fiction game like The Outer Worlds. Edgewater, right, is where you really hear uh, a lot of that kind of dobro or slide guitar kind of stuff sound going on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I decided I was going to try my hand at slide guitar. And so oh, really? I, you played? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I, t- I tuned up the guitar and um, dropped detuning. And, you know, I was just like, let's see where this goes. And I came up with this little this little figuration and that seemed to be very evocative of that style of music. And played it for the team and everyone really liked it and and that's more or less what you hear in the game right now. It, funny enough, um, that piece of music was initially intended for a different area of the game. Um, we were going to use it in an area called Roseway um, at first, but we kept on talking about how Emerald Vale seemed to really need um, that sort of western callback and and then it, it just sort of made sense to, to use that there instead. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned that, you know, you played that guitar. Like, what other instruments did you play for this uh, soundtrack? So in terms of instruments and recording myself, it was really just the the guitar. But a lot of the music in the soundtrack is actually um, sample libraries. Yeah. Um, So uh, a lot of that is is me performing um, and sequencing and programming. Uh, the music that you hear. So I, I guess in an indirect way, that's me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't going to ask you this question until much later, but since we're on the subject, because there's this, li- there's some licks in this, because um, you get to do all this fun stuff with the theme, like with elevate, making it like elevator music, and then you hear it on the player pianos when you walk into a bar or whatever, and that must have been super fun. But there's all these like. This all this really sick jazz keyboard happening in the in the elevator version, and I wondered who that was. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that was not me. That was our awesome audio producer Tony Blackwell, who was a touring musician for many years. <laughs> he used to tour um, as part of Disney Cruises with his wife. So he's just a, a really amazing musician, and um, we knew we wanted elevator music. I knew I wanted to do something that was kind of bossa nova, yeah. um, and uh, just to sort of really play into not that bossa nova is generic because it is not generic it's very beautiful music and amazing music but we wanted to sort of take the we wanted to distill down the worst that bossa nova could possibly be um <laughs> and uh, make that into sort of a generic muzak <laughs> 
So I apologize to any Bossa Nova fans, especially our Brazilian <laughs> listeners, because I don't mean any uh, offense by that. So we just took that and we sort of, you know, and I just said, I don't have any time to do these things right now because we were just, we had so much on our plate to do. And yeah. he he just took it and ran with it and uh, did an amazing job. And they're, they're at once hilarious and also uh, very musically accomplished at the same time. Yeah, I, that's what just struck me. So, because I, I was just casually listening to the elevator theme, because I, you know, heard it when I was on the elevators in the game, but I didn't pay attention until I was just kind of sitting here prepping and uh, uh, the other day, and and it just totally just caught my because that's what I do in my day job, right? I host jazz radio, and so I started hearing these like crazy little licks and I was just like well somebody knows what they're doing <laughs> yeah he does he does That's he really fantastic. does I, I was kind of I was kind of not surprised but this was the first time that I'd hear heard his musicianship yeah especially some of those um some of those final cadences where he starts to explore yes. really out there uh, harmonic territory <laughs> yeah. um, it was really good stuff yeah totally uh so back to you let's talk about this opening theme because everybody loves it I mean people are you know I was definitely one of those people People who would turn on the TV and walk away uh, just to kind of hear it through the house and um, really enjoyed that. And I, I just love that you chose all these flutes. So talk to me about that choice for uh, the main theme or certainly the opening of it. Yeah. When I started initially sketching um, the, the title theme, uh, which is called Hope, I had this, this idea that... Um, well, it, it just sort of organically came out. I, I kind of wanted to ease into the main theme, you know, because it gets quite big and quite grandiose. Um, I wanted to ease into it in sort of a delicate way, and I just gravitated towards the flute. And the initial sketch of the, the, the title theme, it actually was all in C flute in the upper register, or ra rather the mid-register of the flute. And I got a lot of feedback saying that it just felt a little too, the tone of it was a little too sweet uh, for okay. the tone of the game. And so I tried, you know, Tim and I actually sat, sat in my office um, and I, you know, the, the night before we were going to meet, I was sort of brainstorming and, and thinking about what I could do instead there. And I really liked the idea of the flute, but I did understand the, the feedback that I was getting. So, you know, I, I kind of had this idea, well, what about a lower flute, like a bass flute? Mm -hmm. And so I actually just bought a bass flute sample library and I transposed the the line so that it was so that it was lower and I immediately liked it a lot more it just had this very you know because lower register flutes are so relatively uncommon um yeah and so I played it for Tim and he really liked it too um but he he kind of wanted to explore other things just to make sure that this was really the right decision and so we we you know using my sample libraries we tried in a variety of different instruments and the one that won out was the the bass flute mm. and so when we were going to record for the uh for the main theme i really wanted to make sure that we had an awesome performer 
And then I remembered that back when I was uh, getting my bachelor's degree in composition at UCLA, there was a doctorate student there named Peter Sheridan who I knew was a low flute specialist. And I had actually, actually seen some of his videos on, on YouTube where he was playing a really low flute, which, which is the sub contrabass flute, which is, I guess, you know, it must be like six or seven feet tall. And, you know, the, <laughs> the pipe is like half a foot in diameter and um, I'm probably saying that wrong but uh, it's it's a huge flute it's huge. and um, yeah. you know and I just reached out to him and to see if he'd be interested in performing and uh, and luckily he was he lives in Australia now and he teaches there so we we did some remote recordings and the original score called for bass flute but he actually performed it on a contrabass flute which you know, has has an extended register, uh, lower register than the bass flute does, yep. but its overtones seemed a lot richer to me, and that's what you're hearing in mm-hmm. the in the um, in the actual recording itself, the the final recording, which is that that contrabass flute. like your soul is filling up with all that is good about music when you hear that flute play it's just like such a a deep rich sound like you're saying I love it Um, and just the sense of adventure that you managed to capture in that opening theme is I mean I'm I'm not trying to but you get that's some special composition there because writing melodically is so hard and and you just I think, and uh, you know, because you just don't hear a lot of it done well, and it's just such a good opening theme. So, talk to me about uh, you know just coming up with it in the first place. Yeah, um, thank you. First of all, it means a lot to hear um, that you liked it that much. Um, so, I I knew that I had to write the main theme for the game, and um, and I was toying around with this one idea that was a lot more subdued um, for a while. It was more on piano. It was more ambient. And one night in a cold sweat, I woke up and I had this flood of ideas. And I just got out my phone and recorded you know, myself singing and went back to work the next day and transposed them all and got them into, uh, into Nuendo, which is what I write music in, and you know, started messing around with it on piano and started laying out the framework of the form. And it, it all really came to me that night. I, I, I you know, m- many of the sections sort of came to me f- full cloth. I mean, it was, um, you know, from orchestration to, to, to the form and everything. And, you know, I just, I spent a good three weeks hammering out those details. gift from, you know, the muse, so to speak, because <laughs> I, it, it, no, it doesn't always come that easy. And this time it, it really did. And, and I, I'm really happy with the way that it turned out. 
And, you know, I think one of the things that helps it, because if you listen to it and you analyze it, um, the, the sections tend to repeat themselves, but they just get, mm-hmm. they feel every time that you we, we restate that main melody, it feels bigger somehow each time you hear it. And as if, and also the context of which, it, in which it's being performed or rather played back, it feels like it's evolved slightly because of what came before it. And one of the things that I did was um, I, the, the melodic figuration changes ever so slightly each time you hear it come back at, in a new section, the, the, the shape of the melody is identical, but the, the intervals just slightly change each time. But they are so similar that it's, you really have to pay attention to notice that they are not actually the same thing. And I think that, you know, because I've had a lot of time to sort of think about why the music works the way that it does, given how you know, essentially repetitive it is. And I'm not trying to like, yeah. you know, bad, bad mouth my own work. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, if, if you were to just see the notes on the page, you'd, you'd see those patterns. And I think that that is at least one of the things that has helped, that helps it feel like it's just ever evolving, even mm-hmm. though it's the same music over and over. the harmony helps too just the the chord progression itself is really hopeful and very peaceful and so i think hearing that kind of uh you know reiterate itself is is calming in a lot of ways the other thing i think i've thought a lot about this too i will have you say <laughs> I was just, okay okay i thought, yeah. thought a lot about this I like because, that. um there are a couple of things um a couple of just fun things that i've noticed is there's a lot of kind of a rocking feel to some of the music, rocking like back and forth between like major one to major six or, uh, you know what I mean? We just kind of do a lot of this back and forth and it's really calming. So did, were you aware of that kind of uh, sense that happens throughout? I think that that's a recurring theme with the way that I write music. I tend to write in that sort of tick-tock rocking sort of uh, feel where, you know, I, you know, I, my orchestrator refers to it as uh, as footballs, you know, where I'll just do one chord with a crescendo and then decrescendo <laughs> on another chord and, and sort of oscillate between those two chords and, and explore that territory a lot before moving on to something else. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I could see what you mean that that has a, um, it sort of lulls you, it lulls you into being a captive audience in a way.
You talked about piano a minute ago, too, um, and kind of working the theme out on the piano. And it just reminds me of this uh, uh, piano theme that you have in Edgewater and also in Emerald Vale. Uh, and it's like in your soundtrack, I know that you, you know, put multiple tunes in one tune. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know how to word that better at the moment. But uh, but so it's like in the second half of your Edgewater track and in the second half of your Emerald Vale track. Yeah. And and I love how that melody, you invert it. You, well, you don't really note for note upside down it, but I love how you do that. So talk to me about that one. Yeah, I wanted there to be this through line um, between Emerald Vale and um, and uh, Edgewater. Yeah, because they're not the same. No, no, they're not. But they they they're definitely in similar territory, and they do very similar things. Yeah. Well, so if you think about the texture that comes before it, the in Emerald Vale and in Edgewater, the texture is very. It's minimal, but also kind of big too. Especially in in Emerald Vale, it's you know these low, beefy, chunky chords. Mm-hmm. It's very um, stark. You know, very stark. And there's a lot of these silences in between them, and they're also semi atonal too. Um, they they're they're atonal, but they're they're over tonal sounding chords. So I'm sort of playing with expectations there a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and and doing something making something that should be ugly sound nice and pretty. And I wanted to give a little bit of a a palate cleanser for that by by introducing the nice the, the quiet piano introspective piano sections. The one in Emerald Vale has this 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 pitch that doesn't belong there, and I really kind of lean into it. And, and part of that came from me just improvising with it and then messing up uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then it's realizing, the <laughs> actually, I kind of like that. It was one of those happy accidents where it was like I messed up, but then I recognized that it was, you know, kind of it had a, a brilliance of its own. And so I yeah. when I hit that not that note, that blue note, I really just kind of lean into it and kind of accent it to just kind of point out. Yes, this thing is beautiful, and yes, it's pretty, but the world that we're in has its flaws, and just like this music does. It actually came from—there's this—I uh, don't know if I, I can mention this, but there's this, there's this show on PBS that my wife and I like to watch sometime called Craft in America. There was this one furniture maker where he—his whole thing is sort of trying to be edgy all the time, and um, but, you know, somehow one time when he was making this one cabinet, he made this really beautiful-looking cabinet that was perfect in so many ways, but he couldn't stand the fact that he made something so perfect. <laughs> so he took a big nail and just kind of like whacked it into the middle of the thing and then bent it over and pushed it into the wood and scarred the wood because he couldn't have something that he made to be so perfect. 
Wow. And and that's not like me. I mean, I, I actually kind of like beauty too. Um, and I'm not just, I, I'm not saying that he, this furniture maker didn't appreciate beauty, but it, his, yeah. the way he expressed it was just in his own way. And I sort of felt like that a little bit when I was when I stuck that you know fat blue note in the middle <laughs> of this the descending tonal line. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Yeah, and just the fact that you flipped it kind of upside down for, you know, the the B sections, as it were, I, th- I thought was really cool um, and just beautiful writing again. Thank you. Yeah, um, you got to score different planets, of course, but also some of those planets, we go to different places on those planets. So, you know, for instance, the music differences between a place like Byzantium compared to Monarch, that's quite different music. So can you talk to me about scoring those different places? Yeah, a lot of it sort of boils back down to what the narrative intent of and the world-building context is for each one of those areas um, and their purpose in the game. So Byzantium is our one big city. It's our one quest hub where the player can go and get a lot of quests. It also serves as sort of a, a big moment in the story that sort of propels you into the final act. And it's also the center of... Um, of corporate dominance in the world that that we created and so this is this is where um, the headquarters of, of these corporations are sort of um, centered And then Monarch, by contrast, is uh, one of our largest exploration areas um, in the game. In fact, I think it is the largest area where you could just go around, explore, find treasures, and get into little mini-adventures of your own. But by contrast, it's this sort of arid, very windy, hostile-looking environment with these massive mushroom formations and dangerous creatures everywhere. So on the one side, you have this sort of semi-safe haven that is the, the 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 pinnacle of society in the Halcyon colony and then this kind of backwater planet that that shouldn't even be there you know because uh, you know it, it was like a terraforming experiment gone awry So as a musician, I just respond to those things creatively and tried to uh, to amplify those things. Another element of Byzantium is that it's also an upper-class um, city. And so I wanted to have a sense of elegance and refinement there.
Whereas Monarch, one of our characters, Nioka, she's a big game hunter. And so that should sort of give you a sense for, you know, she, she comes from, she is on Monarch when you meet her and she's there because of the hunting um, opportunities, among other things. And so that's sort of the stark dif- difference. This is, there's this one hostile in, um, wilderness versus, versus the safety of, um, of society. <laughs> Love the shrink ray. Super fun gun. Loved that gun. <laughs> so much fun shrinking everything in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a lot of fun. And plus, we also pitch down, pitch up their voices when, when yeah, they get yeah. smaller, too. Yes, which is just, a little. Thank yeah. you for that detail. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> Talk to me about some of the uh, some of the other audio tasks that you accomplished because I, I think I read somewhere that you were in charge of all the voiceover as well. And I mean, that's huge. That's a lot of work too. So talk to me about all the other things that you did in addition to the music. Yeah. Um, so I, part of my other, my, my primary responsibilities at Obsidian is to be the studio's audio director. And so I help, I work with all of our projects to make sure that they have the audio that the, that their projects need. And on the outer worlds specifically, I was the lead sound designer slash audio director so which meant that I was working with our team of sound designers and the game team to ensure that the game had everything that it needed providing the sound team feedback for their sounds making sure that the game was functioning uh, well and performing well so that we could ship the game and have it be stable and 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 all that so I was working with a a team of uh, eight sound designers very very talented folks and also, I helped to organize and sort of figure out our voiceover effort, which uh, which was a, a collaboration between me and um, one of the uh, one of the producers on the team, Matt Singh, who did a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of uh, logistics planning, and uh, the Leonard, who was the also the lead narrative designer on the project. And so, yeah, there was a lot of coordination that had to happen outside of just writing the music for the game. So yeah, it was it was it was it was quite an undertaking for sure. And I should have brought this up when you were talking about Byzantium being kind of where all the corporate headquarters are because, you know, in the game there are vending machines that you walk up, you can sell stuff, you can buy stuff, and each one has a little corporate jingle. And those must have been fun to write. Uh, or maybe yeah. they were super annoying. I don't know. Talk about writing those. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, I got a funny story for you. Um, when, when you talk to Tim and Leonard, they, they've been friends for a long time and they've also worked with one another uh, as game directors for, for a long time too. And... Um, Tim will often say that he's kind of like the silly part of that yin and yang, and Leonard is more of sort of the the dark 
side of that relationship, and they kind of balance each other out. And so Tim had always had these these this vision for these corporate slogans um, that would eventually be turned into jingles. And uh, so one day he just sort of we went into my office and I turned on the mic and he kind of sang slash talked through all of the jingles. And um, yeah, when it came down to writing it, those came together really fast. And I I don't know how that happened because I'd never written a jingle in my life. I just sort of remembered (laughs) hearing these really jingles from the 80s when I was growing up as a kid, um, you know, on commercial like the Nabisco jingle and the NBC jingle and – and, you know, it's, it's not something that is really done in advertising in that way anymore. And um, so I just kind of leaned on my childhood a little bit. Simply the best. And so I was writing these things and we recorded them with these two really amazing singers and uh, we got it all done and it, it turned out really great. And then I posted them on our, um, on our team blog, which, you know, every week everyone blogs about what their accomplishments were so i blogged about the 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 jingles and then before i know it people are walking down the hallways singing it to themselves Uh, and then when they would see me they would sing it too and like as if i was the source of their you know of their the earworm that i had inflicted on them so when when that happened i knew that i was on to something Yeah, no kidding. Maybe jingle writing is your uh, post-retirement career. Or yeah, there you go. Sure, why not? <laughs> Just when you're 80, sit around and write jingles all day. Yeah, that's right. You know, if you need 80s jingles, I got you covered. Thanks for listening to episode 124 of Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about Justin and see a playlist at patreon.com slash level. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com. Made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services and composer Brad Gentle. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media, Inc.